well, my name is Spencer Johnson. If we haven't met yet, I am the, the youth director for our church, and it's really good to be with you guys this morning. Happy New Year. Uh, we're going to be in 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 through 18 this morning. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn there with me. If you have a pew Bible, it's on page 311. Well, I don't know about you guys, but over the last uh, few weeks, my family and I have been watching a lot of Christmas movies. And one of our family's favorites is the movie Elf. And I'm sure most of you have seen it, but I'm going to pretend like you haven't for a few minutes here and explain it to you. So this story revolves around Buddy, who's a human, but he was adopted by an elf Papa Elf, to be specific, at Santa's workshop in the North Pole. And so despite some obvious giveaways like being the only elf who could dunk a basketball or change the batteries in the smoke detector every six months, uh, he really grows up believing that he is an elf and he belongs there. Only one day he doesn't meet his quota of etch-a-sketches yet again and he discovers, oh no, I'm not an elf and I don't belong at the North Pole. And so what does he do? He travels down to New York City to find his real dad, who's an editor of a publishing company of children's books. And he's about to lose his job if he doesn't write the best children's book of the year. And after Buddy finally finds him, they form this wonky relationship between this workaholic, stone-hearted New Yorker and Buddy, who eats gum off the bottom of handrails in the subway. But one of the most powerful scenes in this entire movie, in my opinion, is when Buddy rushes up to his dad's office after going on the very first date of his entire life. And he's so excited, he is over the moon that he barges in to his dad's office where he's having a meeting with a writer that could potentially save his job just to tell him, I'm in love. But he ruins his dad's meeting and potentially tanks his career all in the process. And you know what his dad says? He says, get out. And Buddy says, where do, you, where do you want me to go? And he says, I don't care where you go. I don't care that you're my son. I don't care. Get out of my life now. And so Buddy leaves believing that he really doesn't belong anywhere and that no one really wants him. And if I had to guess, I would say that there are a lot more of you than we're willing to admit that feel some version of that. Like maybe your family didn't make time or an effort to see you this holiday, or if they did, they acted miserably only showing you what you already feared, which was that they would rather be somewhere else with someone else. Or maybe, maybe this, maybe you got sick over the holiday and you were stuck at home alone watching these movies, listening to this music that tells you, oh, you are supposed to be happy with these people who love you. And you know somewhere deep down that you are serving them by staying away, you're keeping them safe, but you just cannot help but feel rejected. Or maybe it's this, maybe you're in this new season of life where family and friends who used to gather around you that you used to enjoy are no longer coming around for one reason or another and you are left with this bleeding question in your mind. 
why don't they want me? And as we look at the Bible together, the God of the Bible is going to say to you that he wants you. And no matter who you are or how much you have pushed him away or tried to get rid of any need for him in your life, no matter how many times you've been rejected by people that you expected to love you, who you thought would love you, this God wants you. I want to prove that to you in three ways this morning. The first is that he cares about outsiders. The second, he cares about your physical needs. And the third, he cares about your heart. So one, he cares about outsiders. Two, he cares about your physical needs. Three, he cares about your heart. So with that, let's read. So we're on page page 311. We're in 2 Kings 5. This is God's word. Naaman commander of the army of the king of Syria was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. And now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, would that my Lord were with the prophet who's in Samaria he would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, go now and I'll send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold and 10 changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, when this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, am I a God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he's seeking a quarrel with me. And when Elisha, the man of God, heard that, that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh will be restored and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and he went away saying, behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not the Abana and the Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, is it, it's a great thing that the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company. And he came and stood before him and said, behold, I know that there is no God in all earth, but in Israel. 
So accept now this present from your servant. But he said, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, if not, please, let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any God but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Ramon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Ramon, when I bow myself in the house of Ramon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. And he said to him, go in peace. This is God's word, and it's true. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you that you want us even when we may feel rejected by everyone and everything in our lives. Lord, thank you that uh, you have wanted us when you've had really no good reason to. Jesus, thank you that your blood has made a way for us to be close to this God that wants us to be clean, to be his, to belong to him. Spirit, I pray that you would open our eyes, that we would see this good news and that we would not be able to shake it. Lord, please change us. We pray this in your son's name, amen. Well, we typically don't spend a lot of time in the book of 2 Kings, and so this story may be new to you, maybe it's not. So I want to set the stage for us to show you what's going on behind the scenes before we dive in. So you might be uh, familiar with characters like David and his son Solomon from the Old Testament. And these guys were both kings in Israel before the nation split into two nations of Judah and Israel. But by the time we get to 2 Kings, David and Solomon are long dead and the nation has split. And the majority of these kings are just awful. I mean, they're worse than the taste of Pepto-Bismol. And there is really only a handful of people that are still trying to keep this train on the tracks. And one of those people, his name is Elisha and he's a prophet in Israel. And if you're new to the Bible, I'm really glad you're here, but you may not be familiar with what a prophet is. A prophet is someone who God uses like a megaphone to speak to his people through. And the God of the Bible uses Elisha and some other people that you really would not expect to speak to this guy named Naaman that we've just read about. And this is where we're gonna turn our attention to that very first point that I mentioned. This God cares about outsiders who do not belong. So take a look down at verse one for me. Naaman is this wildly successful military general from a country that borders Israel called Syria. And this dude had everything going for him. I mean, they could have made a Marvel movie out of him. He was the Syrian king's best friend. He was richer than Scrooge McDuck diving into one of those swimming pools made out of gold. You know what I'm talking about? And he was really, really good at winning wars, even against Israel. This nation who won wars because the creator of the universe chose to be in their corner. And if I could paint the picture for you, like way back in Genesis 12, the God of the Bible chooses to love, to protect and make these legally binding promises. Like he is signing his name on a contract for these people, specifically for this guy named Abraham, who was the father 
of the nation of Israel. He was the very first Jewish man. And he promised Abe that he would bless those who blessed him and curse those who curse him. And that promise carried over to Abe's kids who would become the nation of Israel. And we see God delivering on that promise all throughout Israel's history. But then we arrive at 2 Kings 5, where we find Israel getting spanked by Naaman and Syrian, the Syrian army, like they're the Carolina Panthers. So we have to ask ourselves, like, why? Like, what gives? Like, why would God allow his people to be taken advantage of, to lose fights and property, to lose money and livestock, which is essentially money in this, in this uh, cultural moment? And even their family members are being captured. Why would he allow this to happen? Why would he allow these people who hate God and his people to do this? It is because he wanted Naaman. He chose to want him and he would do anything to have him. And then the better question is, why? Like, why on earth would God want someone like Naaman? And I think there's actually a few reasons. Look down at verse one again. The text says that Naaman was a Syrian. And Syria, which is sometimes called Aram in the Bible, was an enemy of God and his people. And in fact, verse 18 tells us that they worshiped their own God named Ramon. And so what's that mean? It means this, that Naaman would have no possible way of meeting the God of Israel unless God brought him to himself. Unless God allowed his own people to hurt just to meet Naaman. This dude was a total outsider to the God of the Bible or his promises. He did not belong in this place. He did not belong to God. And so that, that's kind of a backwards reason. So let's, okay, there, there's gotta be a better one. Hold on, there's gotta be a better one. So let, let's look at the very last sentence of verse one. Uh, it says, but he, being Naaman, was a leper. So we're going to come back to this in just a minute. But what we need to know right now is that this disease placed him on the fringes of his own culture, of his own city. So not only does, this, not only does he have no way of naturally meeting the God of the Bible, but he is also an outcast in his own home. He draws the attention and mutters of people in his own city as he walks down the street. He would have been avoiding the hushed whispers and the blinking eye contact of people as they saw him coming for years. So wait, so the text is telling us then that the God of the Bible is allowing his people to suffer and even be enslaved just to find this guy who doesn't belong anywhere, not even in his own home. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty much it. But there's, there's actually one more reason and I think it's the best one yet. Look at verse two. It says that during one of his raids, the Syrians kidnapped an Israelite girl and took her from her home and brought her back to Syria to become the servant of Naaman's wife. 
Naaman had just stolen everything from this girl. He had kidnapped her away from her family, her culture, her friends, every shred of dignity and and comfort and protection that she knew were gone. And it was all because of Naaman. And she had every reason to hate him. She had every reason to despise him. And so did God. And yet instead of being bitter, instead of hoping that her master would just die already from his disease so that she could have just even a shred of revenge. God uses this little girl to speak to Naaman. She sees his pain and all of the shame that comes with it. And she tells him about this prophet Elisha in Israel who could take away his disease and all of the shame that he's been experiencing. And then, again, we come back to this question, why? <laughs> why would he do that? that? Like my Enneagram type one injustice meter is just flying off the handle right now. Like this dude deserves it. He deserves his disease. Like why on earth would God do that? It's because He treasured Naaman. He treasured him when he had nothing else. He treasured him when he had no reason to. Okay, and all right, so hear me out. Maybe you're thinking, uh, well, that is a very cute fairy tale you're spinning, Spencer, but that's not how my life works. No one's coming up and chasing after me to give me a hug when I do bad things. And in fact, you know what? Um, No one would really want me if they knew everything that I've done. Like if, if they knew even half of it, they would want nothing to do with me. So get out of here with your bogus. And if that's you, um, let me tell you the story. Uh, So, as I was figuring out that I wanted to become a pastor, I was working for um, a campus ministry called RUF. Uh, we have RUFs here. Uh, and I was at Virginia Tech. I was working on that college campus. And one of my jobs as an intern for RUF was to go and pick up the sound equipment every week for our large groups, our large group worship nights. And after a year of doing this, you begin to figure out like, oh man, this, this closet that we keep our, all of our electrical gear and sound equipment in is sort of just like a catch-all supply closet where people dump their stuff. Um, and so one night after I had dropped off all the equipment, I noticed that there were just a stack of Trinity hymnals. And I have no idea why, but I just wanted one. And so I took it. And, um, and I was fully committed to being a pastor at that point. Like I was on the track and I didn't tell anyone for years. And I took it and I kept it with me. And then I got to seminary, like, you know, the school where pastors go. Um, and I go and I'm, I'm it, just one random day I'm reading and I am just 
absurdly convicted that like I had stolen a book from a church for no reason. It was so petty. And so I just figured like, okay, I've got to tell my old pastor back at this church. And I just figured like that, that's it. Like that's, that's all she wrote. Like I just drug, I drug my family through this two years of financial instability of raising money. And now we're at pastor school and we could have been like doing other things that would have been fruitful. And yet here I am, I've just wasted everyone's time. And now I'm disqualified. Like everyone knows that you know, I, I don't deserve to be a pastor, much less just to be loved. I totally thought Chris was going to hate me. And so I, I wrote him an email, and I explained it, and I offered to send it back to him. And then he, he wrote me this back. He said, um, Dear Spencer, thank you for your sensitive spirit you show here. Um, not only are you forgiven, but the only thing that I ask is that you keep the hymnal and you keep using it personally. I've taken at least two home myself for personal use. And if it causes you too much grief to look at it, well then give it to someone else. Or you could just use it and just bask in God's grace to you. And if we're honest with ourselves, I think we would say, like all these nasty things that I've done, they just disqualify me from being loved. I don't deserve it. Like I don't deserve to be loved because my sins are just at their core. They're just repulsive. Why would anyone want me? And the God of the Bible was telling you that he's not repulsed by your sin. In fact, the more distance your sin and your circumstances put between you and him, the more he is drawn to you. The more he'll run after you because he wants you that badly. He wants you so badly that nothing would keep him from having you, even your worst, most shameful mistakes. But the better news is that he will not just settle for bringing you in. He also cares for your physical needs. So look back at verse 1. Naaman is described as this, this shining war hero of Syria who was strong and valiant and won tons of battles until at the very last sentence... The text dumps cold water all over him, and it says, but he was a leper. And you know what's really interesting about this is that the author doesn't describe him as someone who was afflicted by leprosy. It describes his disease as a central part of who he is. Like it says he was a leper. He would have been known by his leprosy. It would have been the characteristic that people described him by when someone asked about him, like, oh, what, Na who, Naaman? Oh, the guy with leprosy. Oh, okay, leprosy, okay, yeah, sure. But then before we move on, before we go any further, we should ask, like, what is that? Like, leprosy is just not something we throw around all the time, you know? It's not like chicken pox anymore. So leprosy in the Bible 
is this kind of mysterious thing in the sense that it's this umbrella term that the Bible uses to refer to a lot of different skin diseases that people experienced. It could have been anything from someone's flesh actually like rotting off and they would have lost fingers and toes or to something as like quote unquote minor as like these large white patches that would have formed on their skin. And we really don't know what kind of leprosy that he had, but what we do know is how he tried to handle it. Look at verse four through seven. Naaman takes the, uh, the advice of his slave girl and goes to his best buddy, the Syrian king, and he begs him to write this letter to their king and to grease the old palm there so he could get the wheels rolling on this special healing. But this is where things get interesting. You can actually tell how socially isolating and devastating this disease was to Naaman by the amount of money that the Syrian king sends with him to pay off Israel's king. Look at verse five. Naaman was prepared to pay 10 talents of silver, which is 750 pounds of silver. And just to put that into perspective for you, back in 1 Kings 16, the capital city of Israel, Samaria, was bought for two of those. It was bought for 150 pounds. And Naaman has offered the Israelite king five times that, plus 150 pounds of gold and 10 changes of clothes. That would be like if Washington, D.C. was purchased for $20 billion. I don't know how much a city is worth. Roll with me. If it was purchased for $20 billion and then Elon Musk rolls up and offers a doctor $100 billion plus to cure him of cancer, you can tell by how much money he is lugging around that the social and physical weight of this disease was agony to Naaman. And the God of the Bible sees the desperation of a man who would carry nearly 1,000 pounds of money over 100 miles into foreign enemy country, which by the way, he had just ravaged. Who couldn't have been excited to see him? He might've even passed through the towns that he had raided and stolen family members from just to be healed, just to feel normal in his own city so that he would no longer have to be known by his disease, so that he would no longer have to carry the burden of pretending that he didn't hear people's whispers about him, that they carried pity and disgust as in their voices as he walked past them. God had brought him to Israel to the one place where he could actually be healed because God's own heart broke for Naaman. Like this is the same God that David wrote in Psalm 56, you have kept count of my tossings. You have put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? He has kept track of every ounce of agony that is writhing inside of Naaman's heart. The God of the Bible cares about Naaman because his heart breaks when Naaman's does. And his heart breaks when yours does. Like he cares that you don't feel like you have friends in the youth group and you are angry because you just want someone to give anything to be your friend. 
He cares that you miss your mom or dad when they've died. He cares that your parents no longer there and you try not to think about them too often because it hurts too much. And you can't go back to that. He cares if your spouse is not emotionally available for you and your kids and you wonder maybe it would be better off if we weren't with them. He cares that your kids didn't call you on Christmas and that made you feel devastatingly sad and alone. Why would he care? Why would he care about any of that? He cares about that stuff because you are his treasure. And he wants you. And yet he's still not satisfied with just comforting you. He won't be satisfied until these things that break your heart are no longer the truest thing about you, until they are not ultimately true of you anymore. So I want to think for a minute about how he cares for our hearts. So look down at verses 9 and 10. Naaman shows up with his parade of henchmen and servants at Elisha's house looking all fancy and important. After he invites, after Elisha, that is, invites him over from the king's palace. But instead of meeting him outside in person, Elisha sends his servant out to tell him to go and wash in the river. And so this may not be clear, but to Naaman, this feels like Elisha has just removed his delicate white gentleman's glove and backhanded him with it. Like this is an incredibly disrespectful gesture to Naaman who is essentially the vice president of Syria. But soon after uh, Naaman hems and haws for a while, but then he finally agrees to go and wash himself in the Jordan. And if you look down at verse 14, it says that his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little kid and he was clean. And if you can imagine this, all of the shame, all of the memories of the disgusted looks that he had received, all of the self-loathing over his condition and frustration of years of failed attempts by these Syrian doctors just rinsed off of him like dirt in a hot shower. And that in itself is amazing. Like this is a true historical account of a miracle like that's, that's nuts. But there's something even better underneath it. If you look down at verses 15 and 17, Naaman dries off and he runs back to Elisha, his head spinning at the reality that he is now living in. And he says, I believe that the Lord is the only real God in the entire world. And y'all, like, I, I get it. That might seem insignificant compared to the fact that he was literally just healed from something that destroyed his life up to that point. But what Naaman is finally coming to grips with is that his true sickness was not in his skin, it was in his soul. That his sin had separated him from this God who adored him. But now God had washed him clean so that the redemption of his body, like the freedom that he would now have in his hometown to be around people, 
without having to endure the looks of like fear and disgust as he walked down the street, the ability just to even look at himself in the mirror and not hate what he saw. That was only a Costco sample of the joy of knowing this God who cherished him so much that he would forsake his own people just to come and find him. And y'all, there is a better river than the one that Naaman washed in. And it is flowing out of Jesus' side. In just a minute, we're gonna sing a song called there is a fountain filled with blood. And I, I, I get it, like, whoa, that's a jarring title. Um, but let me read the first verse to you. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, that's Jesus. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Jesus, this very same God who rescued Naaman, has opened his own veins to rescue you. And his blood can wash away every sin that separates you from this God who has jumped from heaven to earth just to come and find you. And we have to ask one more time, why why would he suffer like that? Why would he hang on a cross? Why would he be stripped naked? Why would he be humiliated in front of everyone in his hometown? Why would he be beaten to the point where his ribs were exposed? Why on earth would he do it? It's because you are his treasure. You are his delight. And he wants you. All you have to do is believe that that is true. That's it. Would you pray with me? Lord, there really is a river flowing out of your side. And it is a better one than Naaman washed in. Because Lord, while Naaman's, the river that Naaman washed in was only symbolic. And yes, Lord, you healed him. You forgave him of the sin that was happening in his heart. The river that comes out of your side, Jesus, can wash all of our sins away. So we can say with Paul, there is no more condemnation. There's no more guilt. There is no more shame when we step before you. For those of us who are in Jesus. Holy Spirit, would you please make us believe this? This is the best news imaginable. Please make us believe this. Lord, please help us to remember this in the midst of our rejection from the people we love. Help us to remember it when we hate the things that we see, when we remember all the terrible things that we've done, that you stand ready to save us. Jesus, please, please. Help us remember. We pray in your son's name. Amen.